Welcome to an enlightening podcast from IslamPodcasts.com. We encourage our listeners to please comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please remind your family and friends to also visit IslamPodcasts.com for engaging discussions on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, Sira, and much more. I want to thank the MSA for allowing me to address you all. And inshallah, we'll start off with a famous statement by Brother Malcolm. He famously said, and I quote, anytime we know that an unjust condition exists and it is illegal and unjust, we will strike at it by any means necessary. And this was the famous statement from a very famous speech by the same title by Malcolm X on June 28, 1964. Now, my UIC career has been dedicated to clinical services, research, and practice with underserved and unserved urban communities. So this statement has a special significance to me and many others. This statement has become widely known as an illustration of Malcolm X's courage and commitment to justice. Yet so many other important things about Malcolm's activism have not. So today, inshallah, we'll look at Malcolm X, later known as Al-Haji Malika Shabazz, as an inspiring example of who and what came before him in this tradition of African and African-American Muslim activism, how Malcolm continues to inspire a multiracial and multi-religious mass of people across generations and across the world to this day, even beyond his brief lifetime almost 60 years ago when it ended. So let's start with before. Long before Malcolm X was born, and even before, during, and after the final revelation of the Holy Quran to the Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, there existed a global and glorious tradition of Africans in the diaspora who established a global standard for civilization. Legendary ancient Black African empires of Egypt, Kush, now Sudan, Carthage, now Tunisia, Aksum, modern Eritrea and Ethiopia, and many other areas of the African diaspora across continents established and maintained standards of justice. According to our Islamic faith, this tradition of human justice was fully finalized and institutionalized in a final revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to humanity that continued these same traditions of the prophets, alayhi salam, from Adam, including Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Yusuf, Musa, and Jesus until the final prophet and messenger, Muhammad ibn Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, whose message in the Quran seen here and the Sunnah is meant for all humanity for all time. Throughout the Quran and Sunnah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded all humanity and guided the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam as a practical example to make the Islamic way of life into a practical and comprehensive system for all spiritual, social, political, economic, and other human affairs, including the call to fight for justice. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah An-Nisa, Ya ayyuhaladina aminu, kunu qawamina bilqisti shuhada alillahi wa lo ala anfusikum awil walidaini wal aqarabin in yakun ghaniyun o faqiran fallahu awla bihima sadaqallahu aladhim. Allah says in translation, O you who believe, Stand out firmly for justice as witnesses to Allah, even if it is against yourselves, your parents, your relatives, or whether it is against the rich or the poor, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can protect us both. 
And in an example from the hadith of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said, anybody amongst you who notices something evil should correct it with his own hands. If he's unable to do so, he should correct it with his tongue. And if he is unable to do so, he should consider it bad in his heart, for this is the lowest degree of faith. So, so this ayah and hadith comprise our Islamic obligation as believers to fight both individually and collectively in a clear, consistent, and concrete way for justice and against oppression, no matter how strong are the systems we go against and no matter how weak are the people we fight for. During the early days of Mecca, when the Kaaba, pictured above, was surrounded by many of the worst pre-Islamic practices, racism, classism, sexism, materialism, elitism, and many other, other isms we still see today, the Prophet ﷺ practiced what he preached about this new way of life. The Prophet actually was mercilessly ridiculed by the non-Muslim Quraysh polytheists, the elites, the rulers, in those early Meccan phases of prophethood. He was ridiculed for refusing to reject the so-called lower classes of enslaved and poor who had accepted Islam. And this included a number of Africans who were among the earliest converts that withstood that merciless persecution and torture for accepting their new faith. These early African companions, radiallahu an, of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa they included many pioneers in Islam, such as Sumaya, the first martyr in Islam, who died under torture for refusing to renounce her faith. Bilal, the first muaddin of Islam, who makes the call to prayer. Um Ayman, who was the Prophet's primary caretaker when he was orphaned after his mother died, and a number of other notable companions. May Allah be pleased with them all. They were Africans. And here is a picture of the As-Sahaba Masjid in Abyssinia, now Eritrea, on the African continent. And the African continent has the honor of being the first foreign country to ever welcome Muslims before the Hijrah. Some of those first companions of the Prophet they left the brutal persecution in Mecca, but they were welcomed with the hospitality of the Africans in Aksum, now Abyssinia, under their just king Najashi, who protected them and refused to deport them, even when the Meccan rulers sent bounty hunters and their politicians requesting their return so they could resume their torture. And the masjid built by these Muslims in Abyssinia is considered to be the first Islamic masjid ever built specifically for Islam, which is another very, very high honor in the Islamic history of Africa. Now, of course, the Prophet ﷺ, he made his hijrah to Yathrib, now known as Medina, years later. And he built both Masjid al-Quba, the first official masjid built by the Prophet ﷺ himself, and then he arrived in Medina and built this masjid, we're all familiar with, Masjid al-Nabawi which established Islam as a place for a comprehensive ruling system and a beacon of light to liberate humanity from the darkness into the light. And from this Islamic light and legacy of Islam, African Muslims have historically continued leading the charge for change, leading the charge for change. Although there is much modern misinformation and propaganda that the so-called Arabs came and forced so-called Africans to convert by the so-called sword. The reality of the historical fact is the Africans themselves embraced Islam freely, willingly, and enthusiastically. And furthermore, these African Muslims personally carried this call to other Africans and the broader world. Some of the greatest warriors, writers, scientists, soldiers, scholars, doctors, and dawah carriers in Islamic history have been African Muslims, including those like 
Tarek Ibn Ziyad, who led the liberation of Spain and what is now Portugal, the Moors in Spain, who enlightened the ignorant and illiterate Europeans who came to learn from Africans, Arabs, and Asians inside the Muslim world because they were in darkness until they could manage to do an enlightenment. And Mansu Musa, who ruled Mali and is widely recognized now as the richest man in history, it's far beyond Bill Gates, don't worry about it. The richest man in history from his famous Hajj, where he gave so much gold and charity that it changed the economy everywhere he went. And even all the European kings in their capitals were overcome with awe. By the way, how many of you have seen that movie, Black Panther? Okay. Many Africans and African-Americans of all, and people of all ethnicities, actually, and backgrounds were very happy to see this positive image of African self-identity and scientific achievement. And they should, given all the racist and negative depictions in the media today. We Muslims, however, should have a special response. We Muslims, however, should be the first ones to say, don't just go to a movie, go to the Muslims. We had a real life Wakanda. We had multiple real life Wakandas if you look at the history of the African Muslims. This includes the St. Cory Madrasa in Timbuktu, which was an international leader in not only Islamic sciences, but as a full-fledged university, and it was founded even before 1000 Common Era with financing by an African Malinka Muslim woman. Yes, these Muslims who are Africans had this masjid and they had mathematics, geography, history, physics, astronomy, chemistry, trade ethics, research methods, arts, alongside advanced studies in learning Quran and Hadith and fiqh and they had one of the largest libraries in the world. And the famous Muslim Africans who was who fought the memorizers of Qurans and scholars and students who came from Cairo, Syria, and around the Muslim world. The St. Cory Madrasa, in particular, I want to mention, related to UIC, it had 25,000 students on campus. This is almost as many students who are at UIC right now, right now. But it was amazing. And it was even more notable back then because most of the world was illiterate while Timbuktu was overwhelmingly educated. And by the end of Masu Musa's reign, the library at the Sankora University was the best in Africa. It had between 500,000 up to 700,000 manuscripts, meaning somebody had to write it, somebody had to protect it, somebody had to shelve it. This was a real library. And only the famous library at Alexandria, which is also in Africa, by the way, even came close to this volume. And lastly, before we begin with Malcolm's life, let us not forget the many Africa and African-American Muslims who fought bravely and persistently to pursue justice and protect their freedom, even after they were kidnapped and brought here to the US as part of the transatlantic slave trade. Famous tribes, famous Muslim tribes, like the Wolof, the Hausa, the Mandinka, and many other Muslim tribes, they were known for resisting slavery at every opportunity as individuals and as communities. And many of the most famous slave uprisings in the Caribbean, Spanish America, and throughout the US were either led or organized by the Muslims, including the Santo Domingo slave revolt in 1521. That revolt prompted Spain to ban Muslims from even being brought to the Americas. There were also the famous maroon communities in the swamplands that established separate ruling areas that the slave owners could not capture. The Malay revolt during Ramadan in Brazil in 1835 and the Baha'i Muslim rebellion in Brazil and the 1811 German coast uprising 
which was the largest slave uprising in U.S. history. The Muslims were famous for being resistant to oppression and standing forth for justice. So with that being said, and from that historical framework of Islam and African Muslims from before Malcolm, let us now appreciate him as an important link in this larger legacy of fighting for justice. And we'll use this perspective to summarize his magnificent journey from Malcolm to Malik al-Shabazz. And there are so many books and movies and other sources and details on his experiences, we can't possibly cover everything here. So our focus today will be briefly summarizing his social context and historical consciousness, inshallah. So I'm a clinical psychologist on campus, a professor who co-directs a center dedicated to addressing trauma and violence among urban youth and families. So let me be clear, first and foremost, we can never forget that Malcolm suffered the trauma of racist violence and a white supremacy system from the beginning, and it disrupted his early development. Just like so many youth that I work with today in Chicago and elsewhere around the country. His father Earl, pictured above, was murdered by white supremacists for trying to politically organize African Americans, and four of his uncles were also killed by white racist violence. His mother Louise, also pictured above, suffered a nervous breakdown and was institutionalized from the stress of trying to survive as a single mother in poverty while being harassed by racist groups and hostile social service agencies. And finally, his brothers and sisters were all separated and sent to different foster care homes due to his destroyed family household. And not only his family, but Malcolm himself suffered his own racist treatment, including in foster care. And once he even passed through Milwaukee and East Chicago, only 23 miles away from the UIC campus right now. Malcolm especially suffered from the school system that sent him to juvenile detention for reacting to racist treatment by a teacher. And when he returned, he ended up turning things around and he earned top grades. He was even elected class president in Lansing, Michigan, where he was the only African-American student in class. However, Despite his grades, despite his success, despite his popularity, he was still told by a racist teacher that his goal of becoming a lawyer was no realistic goal for an end. This is a horrible experience for an impressionable young person. Broke his heart and discouraged his education. So he felt forced to find a new route to success and acceptance. Just like so many minority youth today whose spirits are broken by a corrupt curriculum and systemic racism in schools, and they end up suffering from mass incarceration, whether it's in juvenile detention or it's in adult prisons. So I want you to look at these pictures. What happened to this sweet, smiling child Malcolm due to all this racism and violence and discrimination? Yes, we hear about the militant Malcolm X, but look at this picture. This is a sweet, innocent child, a happy child. But when you run into a racist system, and you run into an oppressive system, you get this. Malcolm fell into survival mode and included crime, trying to escape the poverty that included him dealing drugs, gambling, being involved with prostitution rings. He was wasting his talent with alcohol and ended up clubbing in nightclubs. And he ended up in state prison where you see this mugshot. Now, when you look at this mugshot, don't ever forget, this is a young person who came out of a traumatic background a violent experience, racist treatment by the system when he began, just like so many other African-American and other minority youth who start off innocent with talent, they're sweet, they have potential, but they're ruined by this struggle and they end up going to survival mode 
trying to fight against poverty, trying to react to racism and oppression and violence. And we see these same destructive results. And there's plenty of literature and there's plenty of uh, documentaries out there that you can look at. 13th is a great documentary, The New Jim Crow, a great book, and many other sources I can provide later for those who are interested. Now, by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's grace, Malcolm, however, was blessed with an awakening. Malcolm actually followed his siblings into the nation of Islam. Once he was in prison, they introduced it to him. And we want to be clear, despite theological errors and orthodox teachings and the aqidah, the doctrines, it was unclear to the African-American masses at that time, the way it's so open for us today. So they followed what they thought was right at the time. And it presented even that little piece of Islam that they had, it represented an alternative and a challenge to the racism and injustice, and it sparked a dramatic change. Malcolm converted to Islam in prison, and he immediately became an outspoken advocate for justice, including, now get this, you're a prisoner, right? Including, this is Malcolm, after he accepted Islam, he wrote a letter to the president, a letter to President Truman. He was still a prisoner, right? Still under control, still vulnerable, but he wrote a letter to the president protesting the Korean War. The FBI immediately opened a file on him, which is a tragic hint of things to come later. And once Malcolm was paroled, he immediately became a favorite of the NOI leader, Elijah Muhammad, who promoted him to national minister. And Malcolm began speaking and organizing the nation of Islam around the country. He established new mosques. He personally led the famous Harlem Mosque. He launched the NOI newspaper. He spoke at universities and media sites around the country. He even met the heads of state from Cuba, Saudi Arabia, and some other countries. And as a result of his tireless efforts for justice, the NOI grew from a few hundred people, only a few hundred people when he got out of prison, to 6,000 by 1955. And just 10 years later, they had grown from 6,000 to over 75,000 members by the early 60s. And they all attribute that growth and that dynamic nature to Malcolm X and his leadership and his commitments to justice. And Malcolm especially became famous for his work in Harlem. And Harlem at the time was an international city where it was an area for the Black Renaissance, which was part of New York, which was also an international city for immigrants. And it provided international visibility for multicultural activism. Malcolm organized one of the first and biggest public demonstrations against police brutality, which was unheard of. This is when African-Americans were worried. They, they used to walk around in fear from the state system and the state police structure. Malcolm led a public demonstration against police brutality in New York, long before there was the first Black Lives Matter protest, right? One Black Muslim was beaten, brutally beaten by New York officers, had his head cracked open, and one police officer saw that demonstration where Malcolm was able to organize the people. And when he was satisfied things were going to progress and the brother was going to get medical treatment, he waved his hand as famously depicted and a whole crowd dispersed with discipline and determination. That police officer told a local newspaper, and I quote, no one man should have that much power. And we know what he really meant is no one black man committed to justice should have that much power. Within a month, the New York Police Department put Malcolm under surveillance. And when he later sent a telegram to the police commissioner protesting that no charges were filed against those offending officers, the New York police assigned undercover officers to infiltrate the Nation of Islam chapter in Harlem and other areas. So today, when we see 
law enforcement harassing and surveilling Muslims and activists still occurring today, we shouldn't be surprised, nor should we be scared. Now, once the police intelligence agents began to secretly disrupt, divide the NOI and try to leverage factions against each other, Malcolm began to see the mistakes of Elijah Muhammad with both his personal morals and his political tactics. Elijah Muhammad was the one who forbid Malcolm from getting involved in the larger struggles. And then Malcolm made his famous statement about the Kennedy assassination being a case of chickens coming home to roost. And he meant that violence was permitted domestically and internationally by the US system. And this was a time when it came full circle and came to affect one of their white privileged few, including their president. He was silenced for this as a reaction to Elijah Muhammad and a lot of other factors went into this that reflected their disputes at this time. And after Malcolm was silenced, stopped speaking and reflected on his best past, he came back and he publicly announced his departure from the NOI in early 1964. He embraced Orthodox Islam after making his Hajj and he declared his intent to work globally across cultures and across continents on a wider level to fight for justice for humanity. Now, this is a picture of Brother Malik in Egypt. And this is a symbol of how he expanded and internationalized his work beyond just racism and white supremacy to address racism and white supremacy as a reflection of global oppression, whether it was poverty, the war in Vietnam, or other acts of injustice. And contrary, and I wanna underscore this, contrary, to how the modern media tries to sanitize his legacy. Malcolm X did not forget about fighting against racism and Malcolm X did not become colorblind. Actually, it was just the opposite. He embraced color from the right perspective from the Quran and Sunnah and he actually expanded and justified his goals as colorful, not colorblind, colorful, where he embraced any righteous person and condemn all forms of oppression as the Quran commanded, the Prophet showed us and his own Hajj illustrated. And Malcolm's legacy of international activism as a Muslim of African descent was reinforced as he traveled and spoke across Africa. His trips included Egypt, Ethiopia, Tanganyika, Nigeria, Ghana, Guinea, Sudan, Senegal, Liberia, Algeria, Algeria, Morocco. He even spoke in France and he famously spoke in Britain where he participated in a debate at the Oxford University where he both defended and demanded basic human rights to self-determination and yes, self-defense against oppression that drew applause even from the notoriously skeptical British audience. Malcolm was increasingly influential and popular, not only in the US, but now around the world with a broadened vision. And given that growing influence, you're not surprised by this. The US government intensified its attempts to neutralize and silence him permanently. We already mentioned how the police and law enforcement was targeting him and this neutralizing intensified under the counterintelligence program, also known as COINTELPRO, of the Federal Bureau of Investigation under J. Edgar Hoover. And you can look that up. This was designed to, quote, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, and otherwise neutralize and destroy the Black power movements and any unity between political activists in the United States. And you should be very clear, especially today, 
This was not some so-called conspiracy theory. It's an actual and admitted historic fact. And you can look it up yourself. And this snippet is directly from the government released documents. And the only reason we know that this happened is because there was some other activists who ended up, long story short, breaking into an FBI office in Pennsylvania and they took the papers. Uh, by the way, they were white activists because everybody was upset, right? And, and they, they, they were, they were uh, being persecuted for protesting the war and a whole lot of other things. And they found these papers and released them to the public. So this is not a conspiracy theory. This is historical fact. And you can see for yourself this direct quote, point number two above. You can read it with me. These are directly from the COINTELPRO papers, and it specifically mentions Malcolm X. It says, the government has to prevent, prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the militant Black nationalist movement. Malcolm X might have been such a messiah. He is the martyr of the movement today. Recent reports and released documents now show, even beyond that, the U.S. government directly manipulated and escalated disputes between the NOI and Malcolm's uh, supporters. They infiltrated the organizations and they spread rumors and internal disputes. They provoked violence between these groups. Then they made sure he was exposed to harm that day by pulling his bodyguards and making sure that there were people there who, who were able to cause confusion during the assassination attempt that comes later. And some Black people who now will admit they were involved with some of the releases, and I can share some links with you. They admit they did it, and they hid the government's role in fomenting that atmosphere and ultimately contributing to his death. And that's not a conspiracy theory. That's Googleable or Bingable or whatever search you want to use. Look it up yourself. Now, Malcolm's house in this atmosphere was firebombed with him, his wife, and their daughters inside on February 14th, 1965. And just seven years later, on February 21st, he was assassinated while giving a public speech as he began after being shot 21 times. And sadly, but symbolically, an undercover New York police officer, Gene Roberts, who infiltrated Malcolm's organization and pretended to be his bodyguard, was the one who gave him attempted to give him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. So an undercover police officer was, one of the, was the one who Malcolm shared some of his last breath. Now we see from the famous book cover of his autobiography pictured here, that definitely that was a tragedy, but that incident failed miserably to silence his voice. On the contrary, it echoes loudly and powerfully today. Let's look at some examples in civil rights, popular culture, and current protests of how Malcolm's voice is echoing. Malcolm's message and martyrdom, it inspired many African-American activist groups, especially the Black Panthers, who are pictured here in one of their meeting rooms with Malcolm's poster behind them. And they proudly call themselves Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, and all those early founders. They refer to themselves as, quote, the sons of Malcolm. And the Panthers Chicago chapter right here in Chicago under Chairman Fred Hampton, it enjoys similar success with organizing gangs and turning them around and bringing together grassroots movements into a broad political uh, coalition. And they suffered the same crackdowns by standing up for justice that Malcolm suffered, as you know, as was revealed recently 
uh, in the movie Judas and the Black Messiah, they just replayed it, where Fred Hampton was murdered in his sleep by undercover agents and a police raid after the FBI and the local police, Chicago, infiltrated his organization and set him up. Did that work to silence him? No, it wasn't just the Panthers. Many Muslims were inspired by the example of Malcolm X, even after he left the Nation of Islam. This includes Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and even people who stayed in the Nation of Islam after he left, people he personally mentored, like Muhammad Ali and Louis Farrakhan. They later recognized and admitted that Malcolm was correct in his tactics and his commentary on a global and systemic nature of the problem all along. Now, Muhammad Ali, for example, he was famously inspired by his mentor to fearlessly and publicly oppose an unjust war, despite being threatened by the full force of the U.S. government for refusing to go kill Vietnamese for imperialism. Sure, everyone looks back now and says, oh, Vietnam was war. Vietnam war was wrong. Vietnam war was wrong. But at that time, it was almost like a 9-11 atmosphere against anyone who refused to follow orders without question and go serve in the military. And people were killed, even students, for even questioning or demonstrating against wars. So this was not an easy position to take, but Ali did it, even though it cost him his prime in boxing. Definitely cost him a fortune in payments he could have made, and he was inspired by his original mentor, Malcolm X. And of course, we want to we stop and pause here, and we must always remember and respect our sisters in the struggle, like Betty Shabazz's wife. They follow in the tradition of Khadija, radiallahu anha, the wife of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa a true partner in protest and progress for humanity. Now, Malcolm and Betty Shabazz had six daughters, subhanAllah, six daughters. And she was a sincere companion to him in providing intellectual, emotional, logistical, and spiritual support for his mission. And she was also accomplished in her own right. And think about it, especially as a widow who witnessed the trauma of your husband being killed in front of you, but still continued to develop herself and stay in the struggle and ended up being a dignified and legendary community elder and scholar who earned her doctorate in education while raising all those daughters on her own. And Malcolm's daughters also are our sisters who have endured various challenges and traumas, including having their father violently murdered in front of them because he stood for justice. And some of them even witnessed this tragedy themselves because they were there. But they have done their best, the best they could to move forward with a few of them even overcoming enough to contribute to causes for justice following their famous father. And here are two of them, Atala and Malak, who've continued his call for justice. And they're pictured here at the 50th anniversary of his assassination. There was also a celebration of his life and ongoing influence. And as we talk about women as partnerships and as mentors to Malcolm, there were other family and friends who provided counsel and resources for his struggle. Let's start with his mother. She was a shining example. She was an activist in the Universal Negro Improvement Association. She taught him Caribbean language and culture, and she insisted he read Black activist newspapers like the Negro World about global activism, even when he was just young enough to read. You can also see beyond his family, beyond his mother, his coordination with other legendary African-American activists. You see him here on the left, pictured with the legendary writer, poet, and activist Maya Angelou. And she and Malcolm were on a delegation that visited Ghana in 1964. 
There was also Shirley Graham Du Bois, W.E.D. Du Bois White, Grace Lee Boggs, Queen Mother Idly Moore, Sonia Sanchez, a famous poet, and many others. And I definitely would like you to look to the right side of the screen at his sister, Ella. And she has a special story. Let me tell you, she was a powerful force in his life, a powerful force that's often overlooked in history. Just a few of her accomplishments. First, she took him in as a teenager when he was wandering through the foster care system. Second, she introduced him to Islam. She was a Muslim first. Third, she helped establish the Boston Nation Islam Mosque and set up the daycare center. Then she provided Malcolm both emotional and financial support. She's the one who paid for his hajj. She's the one who paid off all his business debts after he died. She's the one who paid for his funeral expenses. She's the one who took over the organization of African-American unity leadership from her, from her younger brother. She's also the one who helped coordinate scholarships to Al-Azhar University in Cairo and the University of Ghana for students to st from, from here to go study abroad. And she's the one who supported Black and ethnic studies programs around the US at various universities. And she even founded a school in Boston. This is a powerful force. And all of this with Malcolm working in partnership with women, sisters, uh, mentors, counsels, all of this. I want you to hear all of this without even a hint of an extramarital scandal. Not even a hint of an extramarital scandal. And trust me, the FBI looked. That was one of their tactics. They didn't find any deviation, no inappropriate behavior. Faithful husband, working in the community, very focused. That's why they even tried to do him like they did Martin Luther King, where they were able to dredge up some inappropriate relationships. They couldn't find it on Malcolm. He made a complete break with his past for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, following the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, with higher goals. And think about it. He's someone, before he was Muslim, he was around prostitution rings. He might have been vulnerable to those things, but they never, ever found a hit of inappropriate behavior because he was committed to the cause as a sincere soldier in the struggle. And I also want to mention, it wasn't just a Black thing, right? Malcolm inspired multiple people across race, class, and country. And this is an example of Yuri Kochiyama. She's speaking at an anti-war demonstration in Central Park, New York in 68. This is a Japanese woman whose family were survivors of the infamous and admittedly now unnecessary atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as well as a forced roundup and detention of Japanese Americans during World War II into concentration camps. She was so inspired listening to Malcolm that she became one of the people who was supporters and followers. And actually, she was the one, when Malcolm was killed, who held his head in her lap in the last moments crying, please, Malcolm, please, Malcolm, just stay alive. So she was there in the trenches, so inspired by his example. And on the right, you'll see some of the Latinx activism groups like the Chicano movement and the Puerto Rican Young Lords, who also mentioned the inspiration they drew from Malcolm's critique of colonialism and his advocacy for self-determination. Now, more recently, much later, but just as passionately, a new generation of African-American activists in sports and other entertainment venues continue to draw inspiration. For example, in modern music, especially during the Black Power revival and early rap music and hip hop culture, Malcolm X speeches were sampled 
in, at a minimum, over 125 songs. They were replaying his speeches for inspiration. And others, like pictured above, used his imagery like KRS-One from Boogie Down Productions, as Malcolm X said, by any means necessary, he said, by all means necessary to show the continuation of the social struggle. Right here at home in Chicago, we had a special example of Craig Hodges. He won a world basketball championship in 1992 as a member of the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan. And he came to the White House. He was given the opportunity to speak on behalf of the team. However, Craig Hodges spoke truth to power following the, the Islamic activism example. And he bravely and directly told President Bush and gave him an open letter and said, this system must do better to address the needs of minorities and impoverished communities. And no surprise, when they got back shortly after he was released from the team and was effectively blackballed from the NBA, despite being the NBA three-point shooting champion. And for those of you who follow sports, you know how important that is. This is very similar to the letter that Malcolm wrote to President Truman. And on the note of the NBA, Mahmoud Abdurraouf, he converted to Islam and he continued Malcolm's example by refusing to support the nationalism uh, the national anthem, but he did it in a quiet and dignified way. He too lost his NBA career shortly afterwards. He was a forerunner and the precursor to Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. So these two African-American Muslims made sacrifices to stand for justice. And remember, before Kaepernick took a knee, Mahmoud Abdurraouf, he stood tall. And today we still see this legacy in many speeches of the Black Lives Matter movement and many other organizations and it's the forceful and continuing presence of Malcolm has pressured the U.S. system to willingly or unwillingly recognize his impact. So today, what do you have? Got a Malcolm X stamp. Down the street from UIC, you have an entire college named after him. Even Beyonce did her 2016 Super Bowl halftime. One of the main things, she made an X in formation in recognition of Malcolm X and his symbolism to the struggle. And even here, you have older people who still continuing the legacy across a wide spectrum of men, women, and youth. And his inspiration remains. And here's pictured his memorial in Nebraska. Who would think Malcolm X in Nebraska? But even there, they've recognized his impact and his contribution to justice and standing for justice here. That's one of, their, that's one of the groups that went there to celebrate. And we still see it here. Malcolm's example is still clearly inspiring the youth. And let's be clear, it's more than being woke. It's talking to talk and walking to walk of being woke for justice and global revolution. So in summary, as Malcolm has always said, and is featured in this picture where he's holding a newspaper, he found it and also wrote articles. The headline says, our freedom can't wait. We can best respect his legacy by linking our struggles today to the Islamic activism of African Muslims dating all the way back to the time of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that came before Malcolm, that was exemplified by Malcolm, and that continues beyond Malcolm even today. Before, by, and beyond the example of Al-Haji Malik Ash-Shabazz. And on my last slide, I'll say, this is Malcolm's daughter Malik, who's pictured here. She was born after her father's assassination. She never met him, but she still cherishes his memory and carries his mission to this day. So we should do the same as Muslims, African descendants, and actually all humanity. By any means necessary, by any halal means necessary, we should continue the struggle for justice. Jazakum Allah
Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah khair and thank you for the amazing, amazing, amazing talk and very, very insightful. And a lot of these things I've never heard about before, the different perspectives, obviously going through school, throughout, throughout the high school system and everything, you hear so many different, very different views and perspective than what you gave about Malcolm X. And it was, mashallah, very insightful. And because it was so insightful, I want to give the floor to some uh, questions, inshallah. Uh, if, do we have any questions? If anyone wants to give a question, you can open your mic or you can put it in the chat and I can give them, inshallah. I see that uh, Brother Motosim, he has a question. khair for the talk. Um, my question is, uh, it might be a little bit critical of, you could say, Malcolm X's uh, mission. Um, you know, in the beginning, you were mentioning the, uh, you could say, rise of Islam in Africa and how Muslims in Africa gave, uh, you know, so many, uh, you could say, uh, things to the world. Uh, but when I was reading about Malcolm X, I came across one of his speeches, uh, the ballot or the bullet, and uh, he mentioned something. And I just want to read this quote for you. He said, Islam is my religion, but I believe it is my personal business. It governs my personal life, my personal morals and religious philosophy. And he continued on to say, though Islam is my religious philosophy, my political, economic and social philosophy is black nationalism. So I just kind of want to compare his statement to that of, uh, you know, the rise of Islam in Africa. And I just want to say, uh, is Malcolm X, you could say, philosophy, was it really capable of uh, bringing about uh, the revival of the uh, African man in America as the revival of the African man was done in uh, Africa? This is a good point, and we should be clear. Malcolm X's development was cut short. And as he was growing and evolving, you could see that expanding knowledge and application of the universal Islamic principles. That's why he's traveling around the world. That's why he's talking about bringing up the United States on charges of human rights. He's talking about global struggle. And there were still some aspects of his previous experiences he was working through. So for us, like you do with any historic figure, as a Muslim, you take what is part of the Quran and Sunnah and any errors, you leave. And I, I believe that Malcolm X was continuing to develop and Allah knows best, but he pointed us in the right direction, inshallah, he would achieve it himself. And you think about us as an ummah, because we want to be very practical. There are many of us who were or may be still are cloudy on what's the Islamic political system. There are many of us who were or still are unclear on what a true Islamic state khilafah is, how to not be racist, but not also be colorblind, or what Sharia actually is. And so if, you, if we're working and you talk to us, if we're alive 5, 10, 15 years later, we might be a lot more sophisticated and clear about these things. So he was a human being who was in a growth mode that was cut short by assassination. And I certainly don't want you going 10 years ago from something I said that I may be much more sharper and sophisticated about now, but I was headed in the direction that I am right now as you hear me speak. So in summary, with any historical figure, and you can pick up anyone except Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This even extends to the companions, radiallahu anhu. Anything that is correct and in line with the Quran and Sunnah, we embrace. Anything which has been a mistake, right? Whether ignorantly or willingly, 
we put to the side. And there's more than enough legacy of Al-Haji Malik al-Shabazz for us to embrace that we shouldn't get stuck because there might have been some mistakes or glitches in some areas. And I still, uh, I will suggest to you, and people have written about this, his growth, as you saw, into Orthodox Islam, beyond the nation of Islam, being able to link across the continents. And it wasn't just Africa. It was also, he's talking to people in Europe. He's talking to people in Latin America. He's talking to people in the Caribbean. He was talking to people in Asia. This was a growth process that got cut short. And, and that's exactly why it got cut short by the federal government, as they said, to stop that rise of a Messiah. So put those mistakes that you may see that we recognize now aside the same way he put the mistakes of believing some of the things that Elijah Muhammad said in the beginning aside and continue to move forward. Yeah, exactly. I just, you know, uh, we also had here at UIC uh, a book club and we went over the autobiography of Malcolm X. That was one of the things that we highlighted as well. So I appreciate it. Exactly. Um, there is a, another question in the chat. It's asking about the links, about the brothers that talked about how U.S. worked against them. I believe you, you in your presentation, you mentioned some links. So uh, what I can do is that um, those uh, specific links, if you can send them to me later, and I can send them out to the uh, group chats for the brothers and the sisters so they can access them and look at them, inshallah. Yes. And, and so for, for, for whoever asked that question, so remember, be careful what you wish for. And I have plenty of links and books. And, and these are things which are important because I also study a lot of history, Islamic history and US history and world history, because it's important to know how we got to where we are now. And there are a lot of released documents and books written by not just Muslims, but people who are activists all over the world pointing out these types of things which have been happening. And, and the, the more time has gone, more has been exposed of released documents about these conspiracies. Um, and not theories, but historical facts. And I'll be more than happy uh, to share them. There, and and there's, there's even documentaries on Netflix. There's a ton of stuff. So I will share some specific links I think have, have done a good job. Um, inshallah, uh, if, if I can work my uh, clicker real quick, I might even put a couple in the chat while we're talking. But if not, I'll send them out in an organized manner. Um, once, once the, uh, let me pitch it. Once, once the meeting's over, I'll wait till, I'll wait till afterward and, you know, organize the links for you all. And inshallah, the brothers will uh, forward them to you. But it is important to know this stuff. And, and here's why I say it's doubly important for us. The Prophet ﷺ said, the believer is not stung from the same snake pit twice. So when, we, when we're here struggling for justice in the cause of Allah, you have to be aware that you're going to be tested. Right. We saw the Prophet ﷺ get tested. Still today, people are getting tested. So when you see these things that have been in the news, New York Police Department has infiltrated this. FBI has infiltrated that. Provocateurs have done this. CIA has done that. We've seen this movie before. And so we want to know the details. So one, we could be mentally, spiritually prepared to stand firm for justice when we're tested, just like the Prophet ﷺ did. Secondly, you could see those tactics coming. One of the things I share as an example that showed Malcolm's sophistication was on the day he was shot down, he told his bodyguards, don't retaliate physically with anybody who comes to start trouble. He was so patient when he gave speeches because he didn't want to uh, turn loose additional violence in the community because he knew the game that was being played to make black people and Muslims fight and kill each other, right? And if you look, there were many times People said, we should go get them. We should. I was like, leave it alone. You, you will hear him sometimes. A few people tried to heckle him. He never got upset. 
So you have to know the game that's being played, and you should read those tactics for yourself because if you see them used against the Muslims or the Muslim student associations or the messages, we recognize that type of provocateur behavior. We recognize the systems are not going to just invite you to come overturn them. When you speak truth to power, we talked about people who, who lost their jobs in the NBA and had a three-point shooting champion. You talk about people, even, even the non-Muslims who follow that example, you see Colin Kaepernick take a knee, now he can't get a job, right? You have people fired from, from jobs because they're telling the truth. You have people who, who, who say something on Twitter, question foreign policy, they lose their jobs. So we have to make sure we know the stakes and we got to make sure when we're trying to decide how to navigate, we're looking at the example of the Prophet because the example of Malcolm has value in that it illustrates examples of the Sunnah. We're not following Malcolm X. We're following the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And because we follow the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, we follow those and inspired by those who exemplify his Sunnah. That's the important thing. So I will certainly share those links. Um. Also, another uh, and also, you know, because you talked, so, we talked so much about, you know, advocating for justice and putting yourself in the situation, preparing yourself. So, a relevant question that was in the chat is, uh, where is a good start speaking and making a change for justice? I always like to say, start where you are. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a principle that I think, of course, originated in the Quran and Sunnah, uh, and actually in the traditions of the prophets, is you work locally. You think globally, right? So you can have a global vision on this framework of what standing for justice is and what's justice defined by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by the rights that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us that's non-negotiable, that we were fighting for not just Muslims, but for non-Muslims to have it, for humanity to have, you know, peace, security, uh, basic needs being met, and all the things that the Sharia provides. Um, wherever I get that opportunity to implement that work, be it at UIC, Chicago, Illinois, wherever I happen to be and every place I go, that's where you work, right? And we're all working from the same perspective because we're all working toward that same goal of having Islam reestablished as a complete way of life. For us, the examples are what's happened with the Prophet Sallallahu and the original and, and the companions, radiallahu anhu. They went to Abyssinia. They had every opportunity, every opportunity to sell out. Every opportunity to say, I'm just take care of myself. Every opportunity to compromise the message. But what they do? They say, I'm going to say it the same way the Prophet said it, whether I'm in Mecca or whether I'm in Abyssinia. And so our job is really to still declare this truth. And when the Muslims were sent out after the Islamic State was established and the Prophet sent them as emissaries at different places, they took that message and they said it the same way. So wherever we are, we're supposed to carry this. Now, for you all, it could be college classrooms. It could be doing student presentations you know, as part party requirements that give these different perspectives and add these historical facts. It could be when you're going out doing community service. could be uh, um, the, uh, when you're at your local masajid, calling for a sharper, clearer, more concrete message that stands for justice and calls for Islam to be presented not just as an alternative, but as a solution. Start where you are, and wherever you are, that's helpful because all our hands ultimately will join together again, no matter whether we're in Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, Iowa, Nebraska, or we're in Cairo, Syria, Afghanistan, uh, uh, Uzbekistan, wherever we may be, because we're all part of the same ummah. So wherever you are, that's where you work. And when you move, you work there, right? And there's certainly, you know, to, to not oversimplify, there's certainly techniques that you need to know, right? So if you're working in Chicago, you should be able to connect these ideas to the Chicago context. 
You should be able to talk to people from the west side, the north side, the south side. You should be able to bring up Chicago history. You should be able to talk to people's concerns about things that are happening, or if in the suburbs, right? And if you were to move to Los Angeles, then you want to be able to do it there. If you moved overseas, you want to know the local examples. That's why I was bringing up the Chicago Bulls. That's why I talked about Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party here in Chicago. So we have to be relevant. One of the worst things they can ever say to a Muslim is you're irrelevant or you're out of touch. What anybody would say, you're tone deaf, right? So if something's happening around us, we want to get, get, get involved. Like I said, get in the game, roll up your sleeves, start from wherever you are. And you don't have to be an expert or you don't have to be a scholar to be able to help, right? Tawheed is there. Tawheed can be applied. You have Surah uh, Fatiha. Uh, uh, I mean, that's seven powerful lessons right there that we can apply to things happening today. And so we, by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and with his help, can have an impact right away wherever we are, right? We do not have to wait and get 10 years and you study and then we come back out the cave. Cave days are over, right? That was for, that was for previous Ummah. <laughs> for us, it's like, no, there's no cave. There's a street, right? There's a campus. And that's where we want to be. Uh, Jazakallah khair. Uh, one very last question and then we'll end off inshallah. Any book recommendations on enslaved African Muslims in the Americas? Yes, and I'm going to, inshallah, we'll include that in the list that I sent and there's going to be two categories to look for. One is just on the correct presentation of African and African-American Muslim history. There's a second one, which is one of my favorite categories, which is the role historically of resistance to oppression. Right? So I will send you both so you can see. And again, Muslims have been at the forefront of standing up. And as a matter of fact, and I'll, I'll you know, end my comment on this note, I just talked about the rebellions which happened on land. There were Muslims who turned around ships at sea. When you like the Amistad and you see that movie, there were Muslims involved with that. And that wasn't the only one. There was a Takis uprising. There were other times Muslims even let the boat even get here before they were already rising up. So we're coming from a powerful legacy. And this is African, African-American, and I'd like to say any Muslim who says la ilaha illallah, we're part of that same legacy as one ummah. So be inspired by this, and inshallah, let's pick up the flag and be part of the struggle. Uh, Jazakallah khair. I got a, um, there's one more question in the chat, if that's not, no issue. Uh, the question, uh, there's two questions. I'll let you, uh, We'll go with the first one that came in because we're running low on time. I know we need to end at four o'clock. So the question is, you discussed how Malcolm X inspired people of varying demographics. How should Muslims and non-Muslims work together in the struggle for justice? I think recognizing that there is oppression and injustice is the main part, waking us up to that. Some of us still are a little bit numb to that or we're overwhelmed by it. And for us, we're like, recognize it and don't be, don't be paralyzed by it, be inspired by it. Then once we recognize the common areas and, you know, depending on who you're talking to, they might be moved by economy, society or different things. That's when we must step up and say we have a unique solution. We invite you to work with us toward this solution. Try this solution. Try Islam. Try Islamic system. And, and we have over a century and a half of history that says you don't have to be converted nor be forced to convert to live and thrive. Actually, not just survive, but thrive under the Islamic way of life. That's, that's the example I gave for the Moors in Spain and all the way back to the Medina days. So we have to invite them, let's, say, let's talk solutions. And once we're ready to talk solutions and put our efforts, let's say, what's the solution we wanna put on the table we can work together around? And even if you're not a Muslim or, or um, you think Islam represents or has done something historically that it hasn't, try 
check the information and let's see what's the one that's best for humanity and let's agree to join in that struggle. And I'll suggest to you either you join us or support it. And once it comes, you'll be as happy as we are, even if you're from another background. Jazakallah khair, mashallah. This has been a very, very insightful, like I said before, insightful and great presentation and talk. And, and even the, the questions that were given, very good questions from the audience and even added more insight to the presentation. And inshallah, all of us take this past just a historical lesson just as some events that happened in the past, rather take it as a learning point for us, for us to build ourselves and to, again, like you said, not be stabbed by the same thing again, to recognize the failures and the accomplishments that happened in the past and develop ourselves, inshallah. Uh, before I end off, I just want to remind you guys that um, we have a couple uh, events uh, next week. So just be on the lookout on the Instagram and the group chats. And if you guys have any questions for us, reach out to us through Instagram, email, or the group chats, or, you know, directly to one of the Shura members. Other than that, I want to give one final thank you and appreciation to Dr. Jalil. It was very, very helpful for us as an MSA to uh, be able to, and it's an honor for us to have this presentation. And inshallah, everyone benefited. And jazakallah khair. Alhamdulillah, Jazakallah Khair for the invitation. Don't forget your brothers on the west side of campus if y'all need me. <laughs> inshallah, inshallah. Jazakallah Khair, guys. Oh my God. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Podcasts on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, and Sira are available at islampodcasts.com as well as on iTunes. Rate, review, and comment, and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend about IslamPodcast.com.